Paul, I want to tell you a story about uh, back when I was in high school. uh, You know, my dad said to me, Matt, I think you have iron deficiency. And I was like, shut up, dad. You're not a doctor. And then he was like, well, Matt, your shirt's wrinkled. I feel like I don't even really have to be here for these. (laughs) (laughs) That was the end. (laughs) My delivery is terrible. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend and America's primary care doctor, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Hi, how are you doing today, Paul? <laughs> I'm great, Matt. Thanks for asking. I felt very sincere. I appreciate that. Well, Paul, I'm, I'm doing very well because on tonight's show, we have a fantastic returning guest, Dr. Elliot Tapper. We're going to be talking about hemochromatosis, a condition which, Paul, I thought I was going to diagnose it many times. But I think uh, I have yet to diagnose a case of hereditary hemochromatosis that was, you know, convincingly causing any significant disease. But maybe maybe someday now that I know a little bit more what to look for. Um, Paul, can you tell the audience what is it that we do on this show? And then when you please introduce our wonderful co-host. Happy to, uh, on both counts. Matt, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we talked to the amazing Dr. Elliot Tapper, and we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Elena Gibson, uh, producer, co-host extraordinaire, silent for much of this episode uh, due to technical difficulties, but they're with us in spirit. Elena, how are you? I'm lovely. <laughs> I'm, I'm back. I returned. We, I agree with both of those. Um, <laughs> yeah, so happy to be here. We had a great conversation, well, mainly Paul and Matt, but I was listening, <laughs> with Dr. Ali Tapper, he is a highly educational Twitter hepatologist, if you want to check him out there, who loves caring for people with livers, studying people with livers, and talking about the liver with whomever will listen. So today that is us. He lives in Michigan, where he has a dream job and spends his free time shuttling his children between activities. He is thrilled to be back on the curbsiders, and we're happy to have him here. And so tonight he teaches us all about hemochromatosis. Uh, Some good pearls to take away that you'll learn more about include some potential mimics of hemochromatosis and the most common etiologies of an elevated ferritin. And those include dysmetabolic iron overload syndrome. So that was a new term for us. And then uh, inflammation as well. So tune in. And a reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Uh, Elliot, welcome back to the show. So good to have you back. Your your last episode, I don't want to embarrass you too much, but it was one of the all-time uh, top Curbsiders episodes, yeah. uh, not surprisingly. So welcome back. A privilege to be back. Yeah, I mean, liver liver tests, definitely one of the banes of the primary care doctor having abnormal liver tests. So people can go back and listen to that episode. This one's going to build because we're now we're going to be talking about, you know, one of the potential causes here. So let's jump right into a case from Cashlack. Elena, can you start us off? 
This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef is a meal kit company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef has just expanded their menu. Now you can choose from over 30 recipes weekly with an option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences, all within the same delivery box without changing your plan. So you can go vegan one day and keto the next, and then just go buck wild and go Mediterranean the next day. The world is your oyster. Uh, oyster is not guaranteed. Green Chef is now offering 10-minute lunches as well. So for those of us who are tempted by cafeteria pizza, this is a much healthier and more satisfying option. Each week's menu includes two convenient low-prep and nutritious lunch recipes. They're ready in just 10 minutes. No cooking required. Perfect for when you're on the go or when you're pressed for time at the office like many of us are. And Green Chef is convenient and easy. You can bring more flavor to your table in the new year with Green Chef's wholesome elevator recipes. Uh, this is a chance to... Support the healthy lifestyle you committed to with the New Year's resolution that is sometimes hard to achieve without a little bit of help. And as I mentioned before, they have options for every lifestyle. They have meal kits for keto and vegan and vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and gluten-free. I can say that I, I really I love to cook. I like to feel like I'm eating uh, more healthy, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to find time to shop and get the ingredients, kind of put things together. And so with Green Chef, it's really changed my, my dinner game because everything is not pre-assembled, but at least portioned out with high-quality products with these very accessible but interesting recipes that you can put together. So it's a chance to eat well and feel like you're eating healthy. That is not um, hugely time-consuming. So a really great option for people who have busy lives but still like to cook. So if that sounds interesting to you, and I hope that it does, please go to greenchef.com slash curb60 and use code curb60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Again, that is greenchef.com slash curb60 and use the code curb60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This podcast is brought to you by Birch. Folks, when I was in residency training, it, it didn't really matter to me how much sleep I got. I, I was younger, I guess. I had more reserve and I, it didn't bother me to sleep on weird beds on weird sheets um, wearing filthy scrubs. But now I'm, I'm older and I'm crankier and I cherish my sleep more than almost anything else in this world, which is why I'm thrilled to talk to you about Birch mattresses. Ever since I got my Birch mattress, I have never slept better. I have slept the sleep of the guiltless despite my free-floating guilt and anxiety. Birch mattresses, they're stylish, they're comfortable, and most importantly, they're environmentally conscious. These non-toxic mattresses are made right here in the United States, and they are crafted with natural and organic materials that have been sustainably sourced. We would like to give all of our listeners the ability to enjoy a deep and restful night's sleep with the new mattress from Birch. They source only the finest quality materials like organic fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex to create luxurious mattresses designed to give you the best night's sleep. Every Birch mattress is constructed with non-toxic materials with a focus on breathability to keep you cool at night. Plus, Birch knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial to try out your new Birch mattress. And because they believe so strongly in the quality of their mattresses, each mattress includes a 25-year warranty. Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb to all of our listeners. Again, that is 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Sleep better with Birch. Yeah, let's do this. All right. So we are seeing a 53-year-old gentleman uh, at Cash Slack Memorial. He has a history of diabetes, obesity, and prior alcohol use disorder who was recently hospitalized for abdominal pain. He was ultimately diagnosed with ascites and received a new diagnosis of cirrhosis. 
During his hospitalization, a workup for the etiology of his cirrhosis included an iron panel to evaluate for hemochromatosis. So thinking about uh, hemochromatosis as a possible etiology of liver disease, what is hemochromatosis and how common is it? Yeah, it's a great thought because definitely hemochromatosis is is on the list of things that we know can cause cirrhosis. So in general, hemochromatosis is iron overload and it's hereditary hemochromatosis when the person has two copies of a mutated gene that interfere with the normal cycle of iron uh, absorption and feedback, typically related to a mutation in hepcidin. It essentially, they have a disorder where they're never telling their body to stop absorbing dietary iron. The iron is absorbed, and where does it go? It will go to the liver, it will go to the joints, to the heart, to the pancreas, to the skin. But in this world where we have a lot of blood tests, it's very rare to start seeing those classic things that we learned about in medical school, like bronze diabetes. Typically, people are going to show up with the most common manifestation of hereditary hemochromatosis, which is liver disease. Can you remind people just a little bit about hepcidin, why it's important with the, I, I guess, a little bit about iron absorption? I, it might be, might be useful to just talk briefly about how that happens in the body. Yeah, so... What what we know about iron absorption is that the uh, it's happening in the proximal small intestine. It's mainly because of a portal that will open up uh, by way of ferroportin. Now, the thing that controls ferroportin is hepcidin, which is a hepatically synthesized protein. And when your body, when your bank of iron is is completely full then you have a very strong negative feedback loop that turns that hepcidin activity off. The difference in hemochromatosis is that there is nothing there to tell it to stop. Now, you had earlier asked a question about how common this is, and I think it's worth explaining that this mutation in uh, hepcidin, the most common one that we're seeing is the C2A2Y, these mutations are so common that about 1 in 240 Americans carry two copies of this autosomal recessive condition. And it's, it's geographically variable where actually the greatest density of mutations is in Ireland, where 11% of the population is carrying at least one of these uh, defective uh, uh, genes. But you need two copies to have the genetic condition of hereditary hemochromatosis. So, Elliot, for this patient in particular, I feel like we have a lot of things to suspect about underlying liver disease already. Like, we give you a history of underlying diabetes, and this is a patient with obesity, and then even some prior alcohol use thrown into the mix. Like, I feel like we'd have some fairly good explanations for underlying cirrhosis, I guess. But I do see that we test these patients fairly frequently. So, I'm wondering, should all patients with chronic liver disease be screened for hemochromatosis, even if we have some suspicion that something else might be going on? Or what what should be our general approach um, in scenarios like this? So I'm going to answer this by giving you a, a, my approach and, and show you a, a little bit about how I think I would dif- differ a little bit from some guidelines. So I think in tip- typically, when you read a liver guideline from America or Europe, they'll say, once you've identified somebody with severe liver disease like cirrhosis, you should screen for hemochromatosis. But there's a, a variety of reasons why that's not a good idea in this case. First, this is a hospitalized patient who is ill for some reason. 
And we know that iron indices are acute phase reactants, and we're not going to get the most reliable tests for many patients in the hospital. This is not the right time for this. Number two is that that is just a guideline, and it's not based on any hard data. And what we do know is that this man is presenting with two things that change the pretest probability of hemochromatosis in incredibly important ways. One, he has obesity and diabetes, raising the possibility of metabolic syndrome and NASH. And two, he has prior alcohol use disorder, which is a much more common cause of liver disease than hemochromatosis. And so I tend to want to use what the patient tells me and be guided by the history to have the best use of additional laboratory testing. And for people like this who have given me a diagnosis in many ways, I'm not going to reach for ferritins and iron and TIBC in the first pass of my labs. I like that because we we were talking ahead of time where some you know sometimes you see all the iron studies going in a certain direction and you start to think could this be hemochromatosis and it it's I think you could go down the the wrong path if you do that. So it's it's good to know the setting of where we should do that. Like if you're so you're saying someone who's stable in the primary care clinic, that would be a totally different mental calculus uh, than the person that's acutely ill and hospitalized. Yeah, definitely. So if they're acutely ill, I think most people would agree that this isn't the right time to go check in ferritins. But even in the outpatient clinic, it's important to spend the limited time that we have with patients focusing on on the most impact that we can have on their lives at that time. While we're diagnosing liver disease, we're talking about the alcohol or the obesity, the diabetes, the metabolic syndrome that is most likely triggering these things. Because bound up in all this discussion is really that there's a differential diagnosis for an elevated ferritin, an elevated transferrin saturation. And perhaps we can get to that. Yeah, I think let's do it. So what are you thinking about in the in the hospital and a patient like Let's just say in the hospital, what are you thinking about when you see an elevated ferritin? And you can qualify that if you want to put certain cutoffs that make you think different ways. Okay. So after 10,000, then we're not even thinking about the liver. We're thinking about zebras. We're thinking about severe sepsis, severe inflammation, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, uh, adult stills, things that uh, uh, are the stuff of morning report. After a, uh, if someone comes in with a, with like over 300, 500, that's just a hospitalized patient as far as, as far as I can tell. When you're over a thousand, that's still telling me that they have a severe, uh, inflammatory condition. I'm still not thinking about hemochromatosis. It's just that the, in this case, if you're several logs above, uh, normal, then you're thinking that this person could have a special set of severe illnesses. Just none of them are liver diseases. Mm-hmm. So, so basically in the hospital, again, this just tells us the most, a lot of the patients coming in the hospital acutely ill, they're inflamed, the ferritin's an acute phase reactant, so it's going to be up. And, uh, you know, and then I think to add complexity to that, I always think a lot of our hospitalized patients are sick and inflamed, but they're also bleeding. So then it's like, how do you interpret the ferritin? Is it like, does it look kind of normal because they're bleeding, but it's really, it would be high if they weren't bleeding, all those, all those sort of things. Anything else you're looking at in the, um, 
in the in the panel, like the in the liver tests or in the CBC when you're when you're considering a diagnosis of hemochromatosis? So when considering a diagnosis of hemochromatosis, the two critical indices are one, ferritin, which is going to be elevated, and two, transferrin saturation. And the cutoff here, and this is this is based on iron divided by TIBC. Sometimes the lab will give you transferrin saturation. But once you get those numbers, if it's greater than 45%, you start to worry about hemochromatosis. You'll see greater than 50% for men. But if you can only remember one number, let's go with 45%. When I look mm -hmm. at the CBC and the liver enzymes, I'm mainly using this to start calculating in my mind the probability of cirrhosis. Is the AST greater than the ALT has the platelet count drop below 150, below 100. I'm starting to think, is the game afoot in terms of severe liver disease for this patient? It helps me prioritize how important it is to come up with a firm diagnosis for them as well. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I hadn't been trained to look at this, the um, I think it was the RBC volume, is that what it was, the that they were talking about above a certain cutoff might might tip you in one direction. Do you pay much attention to that? So I think that uh, this is one of these things that has stuck around for a while where you will see changes in MCV that uh, are, are uh, that were classically associated with hemochromatosis, but red cell indices are neither sensitive nor specific for the kind of thing that we're hunting for, particularly in the outpatient clinic setting. Okay. So stick to ferritin and uh, transferrin saturation. And then when we're looking at the CBC and the liver tests, we're just sort of keying in, could this person have cirrhosis? I like, I like it. Paul, I see you, you look very pensive. I know you, you have something to say. Yeah, I don't, I feel like I just, I, I, I feel kind of at sea here. The opposite of you, Wado, where you're like, you're, it seems like you're always wondering, could this be hemochromatosis? I'm reading through the pre-reading. I'm like, oh God, have I missed hemochromatosis 37,000 times? And then these indices are often kind of muddled. And, I'm, and often so many of our patients have predisposing factors that could sort of be other causes of abnormal liver enzymes and albedo ferritin and that kind of stuff. I guess I, what I'm wondering, I guess, is is there any particular patient or phenotype like, that is like slam dunk home run where you think, well, this is someone I need to test for hemochromatosis or like, like what, before you even get labs, is there something that raises your clinical suspicion for it? Or is it just one of those things that you do for completion's sake? Yeah. So I am more likely in the first visit to check iron indices in somebody who lacks classic risk factors for what is best described as dysmetabolic iron overload syndrome. So people who I know are not drinking, I have biomarkers that prove they're not drinking alcohol to excess. I know that this person doesn't have diabetes or severe metabolic syndrome. But if I have mildly elevated liver enzymes, I'm going to focus on global uh, liver health and lifestyle changes in hopes that I can improve those liver enzymes. And I use time to be the greatest arbiter of the diagnosis, where if that person stops drinking or cuts back, or if they lose weight and they still do not 
drop their ALT or do not drop their ferritin, then I start to look into it a, a little more closely. But I have seen over the course of six, 12 months, people take ferritins in the uh, low thousands to the low hundreds simply with lifestyle change, validating this approach. Because common things being common, the mo- it's much more likely that their elevated ferritin is going to be caused by the dysmetabolic iron overload syndrome. Do we understand why that happens? Why the person with chronic liver disease or metabolic syndrome has might have elevated ferritin levels? Is that I, I don't I, I don't that doesn't doesn't quite make sense to me. Or is it just inflammation? Uh, yeah, that I will I will accept that one word answer. <laughs> okay, so one in three people with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis NASH are going to have iron overload. If you stain their liver biopsies, you will find iron there. And there's probably two reasons for this in NASH. One is chronic inflammation will influence the way that hepcidin uh, behaves in, in the liver. And then two, inflammation of the hepatocyte is bursting open these cells, spilling their contents into the blood, uh, and among them, ferritin. So you will see iron and ferritin as a function of liver cell death. But two out of every three people with alcohol-related liver disease will have elevated ferritin. And there are at least three reasons there. There's the inflammation, there's the hepatocyte cell death, and then there's the fact that alcohol is itself uh, an influence on hepcidin. It will increase hepcidin activity almost like it's been mutated. So you can see in people with alcohol use disorder not only elevated uh, ferritin, but also transferrin saturation. Now, you're not going to see transferrin saturation elevated in every single person with alcohol-related liver disease, but you're going to see it a lot more commonly in uh, people with ALD than those with NASH. So back to our case here, we have this 53-year-old, as we said, diabetes, obesity, she has alcohol use disorder, and uh, we're we're doing our basic labs on her. So the iron studies come back. Uh, her ferritin is sixteen hundred sixty-seven. Her iron level is one hundred seventy. The TIBC is two hundred and three, and that makes a transferrin saturation of eighty-four percent. What do you what do you think about these results for this patient? And again, this is a, a patient who's hospitalized right now um, for abdominal pain, and she's got new ascites and cirrhosis. Well, obviously, we've addressed the idea that these, these, these labs can be affected in the acute setting. But if we come back to the basics about diagnosing hemochromatosis, if you have an elevated ferritin, and by that, I mean a ferritin greater than 200 for women, 300 for men, and you have this transferrin saturation that's greater than 45%, 50%, then the probability that this person has hemochromatosis is much higher. So if I was handed these labs, I would say, yeah hemochromatosis is on the list. But there's two problems. One is that there are things that can influence transferrin saturation like alcohol or genetic hemochromatosis. And then there are things that can influence the ferritin, the acute phase of things. So you can have the genetic condition, but it might not be penetrant. So in people with genetic hemochromatosis, you will always see this elevated transferrin saturation, but you don't necessarily ever develop the iron overload. 
and th- this is probably a good time to mention you had, um, I guess on Twitter posted, I can't remember how long ago this was, but there was this JAMA internal medicine article in 2017 by Odafalu. And this was a case, uh, similar. It was a, it was a patient who drank alcohol. They didn't really clarify how much they had elevated ferritin and transferrin saturation. They ended up testing the patient for hemochromatosis. And do you want to talk a little bit about what the mis- what the pitfall was in that case? Because it kind of relates to what we're getting at here. Yeah, it was a great case. That's a, And a shout out to JAM Internal Medicine in the Teachable Moments series. Uh, a lot of great stuff in there. So what happened here is that by by focusing on the stuff that we can diagnose, by the, by the orders that we can check off in EPIC, we focused on the positive HFE gene mutations that you can find in, uh, in the blood. And so because we had a positive diagnosis from labs, we anchored on the probability that it was the hemochromatosis that was driving the elevated ferritin. And when you see that, you're going to respond if you you'll respond to it by ordering phlebotomy. In this case, the patient actually had um, elevated ferritin and probably anemia uh, caused by alcohol use disorder, which was hinted at in the history but forgotten when the blood test came back. They proceeded to get phlebotomies syncopized and then uh, were lost to follow up. Uh, because of their reactions, with their interactions with the healthcare setting. So the, the key lesson here is that although hemochromatosis mutations are so common, the, their actual penetrance is very low. It can be as low as one in 100. So about one in every 200 people have the copies of the genes, but one in every 100 of those people will actually have penetrant disease. Now, it could be higher than 1 in 100. So in some series, it's about 14 in 100 women, 24 in 100 men. But what we're talking about for penetrance there is that a doctor gave them the ICD-10 code for hemochromatosis. <laughs> so it could just be that they were responding to it. But in terms of actual iron overload, it's not a guarantee that these genes will result in that. So you still have to deal with the common problem of right. alcohol use disorder, which was missed here. Yeah. And this case was, I think, particularly because they could have addressed the alcohol use disorder a couple of years sooner. And I think the way they eventually figured it out was she she eventually presented with like cirrhosis and they realized that the, the, the alcohol was causing the high ferritin. So yeah. So sad case. So hopefully the audience won't, won't miss that now that we're, we're highlighting on, on this episode. And I, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about like some of the mimics of hemochromatosis here. So if we, what would be a good way to approach a patient like this? Would we, would you let them kind of cool off for a while, see them back in clinic? Maybe if they'd stop drinking, how long would you wait before you would repeat the labs in someone? Yeah. When you're a hepatologist like me who says things that are a little bit against the grain of guidelines, that means that you're on the hook to follow people longitudinally to make <laughs> sure that you are, uh, you're, you're taking care uh, to follow your diagnoses through. So this is super common for me. We we have a meeting, we talk about a plan, and then depending on how ill they are, the severity of their baseline disease will craft how frequently we have to follow things. But I'll be checking the labs every three to six months. 
there's no urgency to uh, to uh, to immediately phlebotomize a patient. If they stop drinking, if they lose weight, their ferritin will come down, phlebotomy or not. Um, Paul, any other specific questions about this case? I know we I know we have another one to go to. We'll get get more into the into the primary care realm. Um, not about this case in particular. I, yeah, I, I just, I wonder if it's not worth reviewing some of the other manifestations. I know that we're focusing on the liver, which is probably the, the appropriate thing, but just in terms of, we were talking sort of offline about how often do you see like arthritis? I just don't even know what to do with. I think I saw the number was like 24% of patients, um, with the diagnosis have arthritis, but I'm, I'm not even sure how much that differs from just the population without. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, are there any other sort of characteristics other than sort of the liver dysfunction that you, you typically see, or is, or is there a fairly wide spectrum of disease. It's quite complicated because I really do think that the availability of blood testing has changed the presentation of this condition in such a dramatic way that we're now diagnosing it way before it would have been in the days of yore. So you're never going to see somebody with bronze diabetes. And then arthritis is so common Right, I, 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 it is definitely more common in people with HFE gene mutations, but I, 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 I don't know how much more whether that changes things. I think that you tend to see more in the in the form of uh, cardiomyopathy, diastolic CHF, at least in my clinic. I, I'm not sure how true that association is. So if I were to uh, paint a a general picture that is roughly accurate, it's it's basically turbo metabolic syndrome, all of the complications, all of the various comorbidities, just slightly worse in people with hemochromatosis. Yeah, I, I'd buy that because it just, it seems like you could see it everywhere if you were, because like what are the manifestations, you know, elevated liver enzymes, arthritis. I was in clinic today. Almost everybody had metabolic syndrome that I saw. Right. Yeah. Or was, or drank heavy alcohol. <laughs> so I probably could have seen it everywhere today. Let's say this person wasn't going to practice your style and they, the the people get these labs back. They're like TSAT above 45% and, uh, you know, the ferritin is 1600. I'm going to just order the gene testing. What gene testing would they look for? And you told us a little bit about how you'd interpret it. But what, what specific um, mutations are there? And I, I know there's some like off-brand mutations. That's how I'll call them that, that we might think about as well. Okay, very good question. When you order this test commercially, it will be sent to a lab that will use probes for the C282Y and H36D uh, genes. Um, and, and then you'll hear the story about heter compound heterozygosity, where one person will have one of the copies of one of, the, one of their HFE genes will be mutated C282Y and the other H36D. And those people may be may tend toward liver disease, but it's it's always milder, and the data is so much more conflicting. So the mutations that really matter is that C2A2Y. Then, if you have a patient who has super high iron, their liver is full of iron, it, it shines on an MRI, but they don't have these genes and they have a low or normal transferrin saturation, then very rarely those people can have mutations in ferroportin. I have never diagnosed that. 
Okay. <laughs> probably. So, so probably, probably Paul and I won't be diagnosing that <laughs> yeah. more than no, if I feel uh, challenged. Maybe, I'm start maybe once in a career if we're, we're lucky. You, you mentioned the imaging test. What, so if this, if this patient bill that we were talking about, if, if he had, um, heterozyg, if he was heterozygous for the C2A2Y, um, it just heterozygous, would you sort of stop there and say, okay, this is probably just your the alcohol, the metabolic syndrome, the liver disease. We don't need to do any further testing. We don't need to get an MRI and look for iron in your liver. Well, it's, I love that you brought this up, but let's just say that is where I would stop. But let's just say that he comes back a year because you repeat his labs and the ferritin is worse, the liver enzymes are worse. And in this case, I need to try to sort out, does this man actually have iron overload? And in, in the olden times, we would have to stab him in the liver and then burn the tissue to look for how much iron was there. And nobody wants to have a diagnostic uh, liver biopsy if they can avoid it. And now the non-invasive method is to use an MRI. It, it, an MRI uh, will basically have a very hard time seeing the liver because of its paramagnetic properties. And e even though uh, iron would, would, uh, would uh, mess up the MRI uh, generally, in this case, we're using it to make the diagnosis. If you have a very bright liver looking for iron, then you have proven that your patient has iron overload. If there is iron in both the liver and the spleen, you know that it's a secondary cause of overload because the iron is being deposited in endothelial cells because of excess transfusions and so forth. Or if there's no iron at all, you know that this person doesn't have deposition of the iron. It's not hemochromatosis, primary, hereditary, or secondary. Mm -hmm. Right. So hemochromatosis, meaning hemochromatosis, as you said, to start this off is just iron overload. We were talking about the hereditary version. That's the kind that we were talking about with the genetic testing. But even if someone doesn't have the home, isn't homozygous for hereditary hemochromatosis, just from chronic alcohol, other, from chronic alcohol use, they could potentially build up enough iron that you could see it in their liver on an MRI? Yeah, uh, you, you might be able to. Uh, typically, what, what you'll see is fine amounts of iron that are, can be stained on a liver biopsy if, if you're getting very scientific about it. Yeah. But severe amounts of, uh, of iron in the liver, you're typically going to see from hereditary hemochromatosis or other secondary sources of iron overload. Okay. Like so that would be like your transfusion yeah. for somebody. Okay. Yeah. And that, so it, the, it's, and in those states, it's more likely to be pathologic and you would worry about that iron causing liver failure if they didn't have it already. And would these, do these people, do people with transfusion associated hemochromatosis also get like the arthritis and some of those other complications too? Or is that more with just the hereditary type? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I assume that they 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 could. I mean, the mm -hmm. secondary hemochromatosis can mess up a liver just as badly, if not worse, than uh, primary hemochromatosis, and they can also get significant heart heart injury. So uh, the management is usually more complicated owing to the uh, comorbidities associated with those with uh, with the the reasons for the iron overload in that setting, uh, but. Um, I, I, I'm not sure about the whole spectrum of uh, presentations. Okay. So 
I guess to, to conclude this first case, we decided that this patient didn't have hereditary hemochromatosis. Patient uh, went to see America's primary care doctor, Dr. Paul Williams, and uh, <laughs> we, got him, we got him treated for alcohol use disorder, stopped drinking, iron levels got better, and uh, the cirrhosis stabilized. So um, as happy of an ending as it could be, maybe. And then Paul got him listed for transplant too, didn't you, Paul? Yeah, I mean, sure, why wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go on to the second case. Paul, would you do the honors? This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Audience, we want you to feel empowered because when you're empowered, you're prepared to take on everything that life throws at you. And getting yourself into therapy is something that we feel is important because as we've talked about on the show, many of us, we just procrastinate, we're intimidated by the idea of therapy, or we just don't make that time to take care of ourselves. As I've said, I myself have been in therapy. I found it very helpful. BetterHelp is a great way to do this because if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is convenient, it's flexible, affordable, it's all online. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. They make it so easy and for a lot of you out there, I bet it's that procrastination, it's that hurdle that you have to get over. So if you want to live a more empowered life therapy can get you there visit betterhelp.com slash curb today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash curb sure we're moving on to francesca who is a 51 year old female with a history of celiac disease who's presenting for her annual visit she was recently tested for hemochromatosis due to a positive family history in her brother and was found to have a PC282Y homozygosity, and I'm sorry if I said those numbers in a weird way, but that's what we're stuck with. Your labs are notable for a ferritin of 278, a TSAT of 59%, and an elevated hemoglobin of 15.1. Um, and so I, I guess the, the follow-up question is, we're, we're sort of in different territory now. So how is this case markedly different and sort of what what are the potential complications here as, as opposed? Um, yeah. So let's actually, let's just stop right there. What are the potential complications we might be on the lookout for? Yeah. So this is a, 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 a person who now is starting to fit the bill of someone where if these were the only numbers that I got, I would be worried about uh, genetic and partially at least penetrant uh, hemochromatosis. She has a ferritin greater than 200. She's also coming at me as a woman with a history of a disease that is associated with iron deficiency. So I have a feeling that, you know, sh that uh, sh she uh, ha uh, has, this ferritin has fought against great odds. Uh, so <laughs> uh, so I, I'm a little bit nervous already. But the ferritin, although it can be diagnostic of hemochromatosis, it's typically the case that when it is less than a thousand, there's a higher likelihood that they have not developed cirrhosis. So back when we were trying to be very sparing with whom we would biopsy, we would actually wait until the ferritin was greater than a thousand before deciding to biopsy to rule out cirrhosis. And it is true that if you present with hemochromatosis and a ferritin of a thousand, you're much more likely to have underlying cirrhosis. So my gut sense is that this is somebody who is about to get diagnosed with hemochromatosis, but we're going to have a, a, a much more laid-back discussion about it. What would your spiel be like for this, for this 
patient. Um, how would you how would you explain it and what what she might expect going forward if if we were to find that? Yeah, the first thing I would do is start drawing out the cascade from hepside into ferroportin in the jejunum. <laughs> you know? But there I mean, go. at the end of the day, I it, I think this person would be able to understand that their body is very hungry uh, for iron and that it's dumping it in the liver and that when you start to dump extra toxins into the liver, it has the capacity to cause uh, inflammation, which I liken to something like burning your skin. And if you burn your skin, it can cause damage. The redness or inflammation will eventually go away and can be left with a scar. And that same process can be occurring in the liver. And so the two main objectives that I have in clinic today are to talk about, one, how I can reduce the odds that she'll develop inflammation or scar formation, and two, be able to tell her, perhaps even today, how much scar tissue she has in her liver so that she can know about her overall liver health and the need to do other things like screening for liver cancer and so forth. So what testing might you order as a follow-up to this? Um, Because we have these we have these basic lab, baseline labs from from Paul. Paul is referring her over to you because he had the same gestalt. So. <laughs> That's exactly how this would go down. Yeah, so this feels great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is a good set of labs. I mean, if I was seeing somebody like this and I didn't know their liver enzymes, I would go get their liver enzymes. If I had their liver enzymes and they were elevated, you know, I would ask about alcohol. I would consider checking a phosphatidyl ethanol or PETH level, which is a test that has really revolutionized my practice. I always tell people that I am going to be looking for a biomarker that tells me how much alcohol that they've been consuming over the last three weeks. I don't try to do this as a gotcha. And anyone who walks into my clinic who hasn't been checked for Hep C or Hep B is going to. But uh, that's just to, to round things out. Beyond that diagnostic part, the prognostic information that I'll get, you can get in clinic by calculating something like the FIB4, uh, which is based on the platelets, the AST, and the ALT. But in my clinic, I'll be using FibroScan, which has functionally replaced liver biopsy in this setting. So I don't need a liver biopsy to tell me if there's iron. In this person, I've got HFEG mutations and a positive transferrin saturation and elevated ferritin. You don't even need an MRI you know that they have a risk for hemochromatosis. And then uh, I use my fiber scan to tell me about how, what the risk of cirrhosis is uh, in this clinic today. So you mentioned no MRI. Why wouldn't you want an MRI in this case? Or what, what sort of case would you find the MRI helpful? Is it important to quantify like how much iron is in the liver if if you're testing, like if you do the FIB4 or you do the elastography and you're worried, okay, this person has advanced fibrosis, um, do you even need to do any further testing? Yeah. So in this case, if we don't have any other competing diagnoses that could be uh, manifesting in part as this dysmetabolic iron overload syndrome, then I would feel comfortable and guidelines would allow me the privilege of providing this diagnosis face-to-face without any additional testing like MRI. But where the diagnosis is in question or there are competing probabilities and you need to know if, the, if there is iron in the liver, 
to to provide this person with the positive diagnosis of hemochromatosis, then you will go to that MRI. And the uh, once I know that they have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis based on the fiber scan, and after my limited laboratory evaluation, I'm done. I can tell them everything that they need to know about how clinic with me is going to go on a semi-annual basis. People with hemochromatosis who present like this, who, are, who, who is otherwise asymptomatic, if they have cirrhosis, they're at increased risk of developing liver cancer. That, that risk will decline if we can remove the iron from their blood and get them down to a ferritin of like 50, but it will never go away. That leads into sort of my next question about concretely sort of what does management look like from here? And obviously, you know, the, the broader answer is it depends, but it sounds like it's mostly kind of, I'm not sure if this is the right term, like liver preservation, uh, protection from viruses, minimization of sort of toxin exposure, that kind of thing. But when when are you pulling the trigonal phlebotomy? And is there anything else that you're sort of in your armamentarium to like, I guess, when are you making these decisions and what what guides sort of what happens next? Yeah. So the key branch point is cirrhosis or no cirrhosis. Once you're in cirrhosis, you get that whole package where we start to think about liver cancer screening, screening for varices. Like you said, general liver care, make sure that they're vaccinated against hepatitis A, hepatitis B. And then we'll and then we'll talk about phlebotomy, but the sort of general practice that anybody has for someone with hemochromatosis is to tell them to, if they're taking a multivitamin, make sure there's no iron in it to try to, to, try to keep cut back on things like red meat. And then three, because people with high transferrin saturations are at high risk of getting serious invasive infections from uh, bacteria that require transferrin uh, to get the iron for their own metabolism, like Vibrio vulnificus. We tell all people like this to avoid the coastal waters in the spring and summer, as well as to avoid eating uncooked or raw shellfish-like oysters. So when it comes to phlebotomy, the goal is to get that ferritin to 50 to 100. That's our goal. And uh, Typically, I'll make a decision about how fast I want to get there based on how robust the patient is. So if they come to me with a ferritin of 1,000 and they're 36 years old and I, I'll just, we'll do phlebotomy once every week or two weeks until we get down to a, that, that low ferritin. If I'm a little bit worried about them, I'll space it out. And sometimes what I'll find when I'm doing phlebotomy is that the ferritin will plummet very quickly. And in that case, I've actually learned that the person probably didn't have uh, penetrant hemochromatosis in the first place. I was probably phlebotomizing NASH, uh, which is ah. something that a lot of people have done. So if you can, if you can normalize a very high ferritin very quickly, uh, you're, you're probably putting that person at risk of iron deficiency anemia, even with a high ferritin. And you can start to see that as the, iron, the transferrin saturation will start to plummet. Uh, and the iron will be very low. So it, there's no hard and fast rule about how many units of blood need to come out before that person will normalize. But if you watch the kinetics uh, for your given patient, you can get a better sense of what their total iron stores are and what the underlying biology that drove their presentation in the first place was. I'm curious. I, I met a patient with uh, hemochromatosis once that told me that they, when they 
drank alcohol, they felt bad, and that when they donated blood, they felt very good. And they weren't in a formal, they didn't have someone like yourself like following them. They were kind of... <laughs> Uh, just kind of on their own going for phlebotomy. Just self-titrating uh, their ferritin. I was yeah. trying, yeah, I, I, I tried to convince uh, them to go to see hematology to get some official, you know, someone yeah. someone actually doing this in a systematic way. Okay, so I have heard this story several times myself, and um, I have learned the hard way to never take a placebo effect away from a patient. Sure. Uh, you don't like you so um some people get kind of hooked on the uh, phlebotomy even the people who don't have penetrant hemochromatosis will still like to go give blood and if they are giving the blood to the red cross then that is phenomenal uh it's very hard when i will like somebody will retire and then they'll they'll come to see me and then i'll say sure that you need phlebotomy because you went six months and your ferritin went from 50 to 45. So I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure. And then they'll get upset, but like, I need my phlebotomy. I feel so much better. So in, in this case, uh, I've definitely seen that. I cannot fully explain it. Um, but we also pump it up for the patient that it's good for them. So um, I don't know where it starts for anybody, but I am okay. not one to question that. All right. Okay. So this, this, I, it, the person was very convincing and I was like, I look, if it feels good, good, you know, then I, I would just have someone check your levels, make sure you're not like going to become anemic from, from this. So it's always great primary care counseling. So if it feels good. You should be doing it. Just keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> so I really like it when people are in maintenance phase to, if that, if they can give their blood, there's something profoundly sad about doing it in the, uh, phoresis center and we just throw the blood away and there was for a time a kind of stigma from the R red cross about whether or not it was okay to donate blood if you had hemochromatosis i'm not sure why they were saying that i know that they don't want to be serving as like providing a medical service but uh. for patients who are in the maintenance phase where they might only need to do a phlebotomy a few times a year uh, this is the perfect opportunity to uh, make it count twice. Love that. That's great. All right, Elliot, and uh, we're we're running down to the wire here, but I did want to ask about because I I had seen this. Our, our first case, Bill, was a, was a man that we gave you, and in this case, Francesca, this is a female. What what are the sex differences, if any, or in patients uh, of hemochromatosis? Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, th I think there's two ways of looking at this. And the first is epidemiologically. And th it is that men are more likely to present with severe uh, iron overload, that the penetrance of this condition is higher in men. And then the other thing is that they're going to present at an earlier age because their cumulative exposure to iron is higher. Because in contrast, women uh, uh, are uh, more likely to have menstruation uh, through a large part of their life, which is uh, effectively preventing that that iron overload. This is modified by a variety of things, behavior, environmental exposures uh, that may have led to men being more classically associated with iron overload, alcohol, or obesity in those studies from, from times in the past. And nowadays, I'm more likely to make a diagnosis of penetrant hemochromatosis in a younger woman 
even in her 20s, because patterns of birth control have changed such that there's now continuous forms like IUDs or, uh, or oral contraceptives without interruption that result in a cessation of menstruation for many, many years. And so you're much more likely to pick up an elevated ferritin in a younger woman now. So a lot of these sex differences might be rooted in just differing trends, uh, secular trends. It is probably more likely that there's differences in cancer risk that you might pick up, but I'm not sure how uh, solid those uh, associations are. So probably two more questions here. And I, I I think anytime anyone gets a genetic test, it's it can always be a little scary where if somebody's family member got a genetic test and you you're operating for incomplete information, you know, someone says, oh, my, my family member has it. Maybe the family member was heterozygous or maybe the patient was heterozygous and they just see that they have the gene. So now they're telling people they have hemochromatosis. How do you sort that out or how do you talk to the patient about, about that? So the issue here is that we rarely have perfect information about what our patient has heard about their loved one's uh, genetic history. And responding to that, I think our society guidelines tend to say, if you have diagnosed hemochromatosis, then recommend that first-degree relatives be tested. But we know that this is an autosomal recessive condition and that it is variably uh, penetrant. So our responsibility to is to tell people that uh, that not everyone in their family is going to end up with this disease. It does not affect. Uh, it should not affect anything like family planning, uh, and that um, uh, people with one copy of this genetic uh, uh, condition are not likely to present with any uh, any disease. I like it, Elliot. Last. Last question here is in primary care, I find that I I tend to get the person, and you told us this great term, dysmetabolic iron overload. So now that I know that, I feel like I have a better handle of what's probably going on, but I tend to get these people who have either a high ferritin, let's say 500 or above, or, or they have a high just randomly transferrin saturation in the 40 to 50% range. And I'm just like, is this hemochromatosis? How should I follow this up? How, how would you handle that if you were us in primary care? So I think there's at least a couple of considerations. The first is whether you think that this is a touchstone for you to help counsel your patient. If they can see that this ferritin reflects inflammation and that what's happening uh, with that iron is that it is effectively kindling for the fire that is going on in their liver or their heart or their joints, and that if they improve their underlying health, they can cool that fire off, then that's great. But not everybody responds to blood tests in that kind of productive way. So you might be stuck thinking about when is the threshold where you're no longer comfortable just watching or forgetting about it, and you have to consult hepatology. And if you watch it for a couple of years, and you watch it go up to 600, 700, 800, then I'm not going to be mad at you. Give me a call, right? And <laughs> here at Cash Like Hospital, we are, we, 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 we are there for each other. And um, if you've watched someone's ferritin go up, this is probably somebody with severely inflammatory liver disease. More, more often than not. 
So it actually brings up a sidebar here, which is that if Nash is the most common thing that's driving this, and the ferritin is a sign of the inflammation, and that there's actual iron being deposited in the liver, it might be the case that if we lowered that uh, ferritin, if we lowered that iron, there'd be less kindling for the liver fire. There's actually been a randomized trial of phlebotomy in just this patient by Adams et al. And we're talking about people with ferritins of like 400 or so, not the greater than 1,000. And uh, drum roll, it made no difference to the patient's liver enzymes <laughs> or, or, their, or their liver histology. Oh, so man. it would have been awesome. But uh, unfortunately, yeah. I'm super glad they did that study because we see this all of the time. But the ferritin will come down if they lose weight or stop drinking and so forth. So it is still a reliable biomarker of liver health in this case. Okay. So I can add this to my, my, my metabolic syndrome checklist when I tell patients, you know, because I, I do think it's helpful to say to patients, you know, they're saying, am I, am I sick from my obesity? And I'm like, well, let's, let's go through the checklist. And now this is going to be on there with diabetes and blood pressure and sleep apnea, all the, all the other ones I, I tick off on there. So great. Well, I think at some point we have to let you go. Uh, certainly it's a, it's a, what is it? A Wednesday night, Paul? It's a Wednesday <laughs> night. Right. I'm sure you have better <laughs> things to do. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, let's, let's get some take-home points here. Well, if, if people had to re remember just like two or three things about this discussion, what, what would they be? Well, for me, the most common causes of an elevated ferritin are still going to be alcohol use disorder and metabolic syst uh, syndrome slash NASH. And then if you want to diagnose hemochromatosis, you're looking for significantly elevated ferritin and the elevated transferrin saturation, greater than 45 for women, greater than 50% for men. And finally, that although this is a super common genetic condition, perhaps the most common autosomal recessive genetic condition, its penetrance is low, somewhere between, somewhere around 10%. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. That was helpful. Always great to hang out with you. Big fan of your Twitter. Even though I'm not on Twitter that much anymore, uh, I do. I always enjoy reading your tutorials whenever, whenever I'm on there. And uh, that's it. We'll let you get on with the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> we knew it was you. You get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for free CME. And a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Elena Gibson. And to our whole team, uh, technical production is done by Podpaste. Uh, Elizabeth Proto and Jen Watto run our social media. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And so with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Elena Gibson here. Good night. 
And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.